Hello, and welcome to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Victoria Myers. Victoria is a writer focusing on film and television projects. For five years, she was the founder and editor-in-chief of the game-changing theater publication, The Interval, for which she interviewed numerous Tony and Pulitzer Prize winners, conceived special projects, and did creative direction for photo shoots. Additionally, for The Interval, she conceived and produced a short film reimagining classic characters of the theater from a female perspective. Her profile, Bernadette Peters, was featured on multiple best-of lists and is considered to be the definitive profile of Peters. We're going to talk today about the musical roles of Bernadette Peters. Hey, Victoria. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I was beginning to feel like the only one of your friends who hadn't been asked. So I'm very excited that we're making it happen and to talk about somebody who we both really love. I know. I'm so excited. Uh, Before we get to that, let's uh, first do our get to know our guest questions. Uh, What was your first experience with a musical? So I, my first experience with like broadly defining musical was probably on television, which is when I was really love a little, I loved uh, Shirley Temple movies, which I saw on TV. Um, And that was when I was about three. And also, um, as I think is widely known about me being widely known among, you know, my friends, um, not the greater public. I, uh, I Love Lucy is one of my earliest memories. The first time I saw I Love Lucy, and I very much associate that with sort of musicals as well, because so many of those episodes involve staging musical numbers, and because Ricky's job was a band leader and all that. I saw my first Broadway show, which was Guys and Dolls, with Nathan Lane and Faith Prince, uh, which I really loved. Um, and also then that year when I auditioned for Annie, instead of performing one of the songs from Annie or one of the other sort of little girl songs, I decided to perform Luck Be a Lady Tonight with full choreography, which I did myself. I did not get the part. What musical has had the greatest impact on you? I wouldn't categorize this as a musical, but the American Theater Wing did. So I will go with their definition and pick Everyday Rapture. And the Tony Awards, they certainly classified it as a musical. I don't actually think Sherry considers it a musical. I think she considers it a play with music. Mm-hmm. Uh but either way, it is my choice for the answer of this question. <laughs> what is a musical people would be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? So people were surprised that I like musicals, and especially surprised that I like musical comedy, which I really love. And I mean, by musical comedy, I mean, like, very classic musical comedy uh, that has, you know, that is not social satire, really, or any of those things. It's just supposed to be funny. Um, although I like a wide range of musical comedy. But anyway, in thinking about this question, I actually think that one that people would be the most surprised that I like is Carousel, hmm. which again, I think sort of relates back to a lot of the work at the interval because so many people find that musical uh, not great for women. And I actually find it, 
I mean, I think it's a very flawed musical, including structurally flawed. Like, I think it's a weird, weird show. And I have sort of complicated feelings about Rodgers and Hammerstein separate from this. Um, But I also think it's a really interesting show. And I think it's a challenging show. And it's sort of, for me, the one show, despite the fact that I have never had any interest whatsoever in, like, being a theater director, Whereas since I was quite little, like I've always wanted to direct a movie, but like theater never. The one thing that I would at some point, like if I became very famous, which hopefully I will, fingers crossed. Um, but if I became very famous and people were like, hey, do you want to direct a Broadway musical? We will give you 100% creative control. And also like whatever budget you want, Carousel would be the thing that I would pick. Yeah. Um, and actually one of the things I like about it the most is the line that everyone thinks should be cut, which is the somebody can hit you and it cannot hurt line. I just paraphrase it badly. Because uh, I think I disagree with the way in those discussions characterized. And I actually think the like more the point of that line. And I think like going into the graduation scene, it's also sort of more about you're not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And I think there's a way of positioning the show that's very different than how a lot of productions have positioned it. Because, like, I don't think I've ever seen a production that's actually been successful. Um, and the closest that I've come to seeing a production I really like is concert versions. Well, a concert version. Which I also think is sort of an intriguing concept of, like, why something works in concert and not in a full production. And, like, what's going wrong between the two. Um, and I think it's because a lot of times in concert versions, and as an audience member, like, you can bring much more to it on your own and not as much as handed to you and it gives more space for you as an audience member to sort of build your own interpretation and think about how like what something might mean to you whereas in productions that's not always so much the case um and I just think Carousel has a lot of let's say empty space left to explore who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical? I think just because I, and I think we'll get into this once we get into the Bernadette Peters discussion more. I think because I come at things so from a perspective of thinking about the specific production and the specific performances, that for a lot of things, it's hard for me to give like a generalized answer because I just think, well, one production is so different from another production. And I think things on the page are not fully formed. Mm -hmm. um, so questions like that are difficult for me. Although my joke answer that is for both um, protagonists and antagonists is, or I guess villain, um, is Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom for both questions. Nice. Is there a show you've gained a greater appreciation for over time? So again, I'm going to change the question a tiny bit because it's not a show, but Rodgers and Hammerstein or some of their work. Yeah. Because I actually, I didn't grow up with it at all. Like I never saw a single production, never saw any of the movies. I think I maybe saw like a couple of scenes from some of the movies. Um, but I grew up in like a very anti-sound of music household. So I never saw that. And then I just sort of never saw any of the others. Although I certainly knew all the music. and sort of putting a little caveat around the sound of music, um, which I think I did grow up with very negative impressions of, which I still have. Like that I 100%, I think is a terrible. 
So putting that aside, but I think with the rest of them, I just found them like, oh, they sound like really hokey and really uninteresting. You know, again, I don't like all of them, but given that I just said carousel for one of the answers and I really like South Pacific, but again, I'm sort of talking about that 2008 production right. um, and the 2008 production with the original cast. Then when I saw that production, South Pacific, I mean, as an adult, well, young adult, because I liked it and I was surprised about how much I liked it because I wasn't really expecting to. Um, and the other thing that I was surprised about is that as a show, it's sort of like every person in that show is kind of terrible with maybe the exception of like one, but like none of those characters are actually likable. And it's sort of like, because of the way that Rogers and Hammerson has been like thought of culturally, I think there's sort of a very simplistic view of it that we sort of take it for granted of a long time of like, oh, this character is this, this character is this, this is what the show is. And I think in fact, when you step back and look at it, a lot of that stuff isn't true or certainly doesn't have to be true which I think makes it really interesting. And I think going along with that, it's like, I think for Rodgers and Hammerstein, like it doesn't just work on the page. Like you can't just slap it up and make those productions work. And I would say some of them do not work at all. Um, but I think for them to work, even the ones that can work really well, like it actually takes a lot of effort. Well, let's get into our topic, which is the roles of Bernadette Peters. And this is the first time I on the show, I believe that we are talking about musical theater through uh, a performer uh, instead of, you know, through a, through a musical itself or through certain writers of musicals or certain ideas about musicals. So I'm really excited to, to get into this and, and to talk about musicals in this way um so yeah um and and you of course uh have a history with with writing about bernadette peters like i knew bernadette peters from watching you know first from watching the videos of into the well first definitely into the woods sunday in the park with george a little bit later yeah so that's that was my first encounter with her i was about eight years old i was in third grade and i saw that video of into the woods for the first time became obsessed with it um but particularly loved bernadette peters like she was like the highlight of that for me and grew to love her and then when i was 11 in sixth grade my mom took me to see the goodbye girl which was a short-lived musical that she was starring in and i was like very excited because i was finally going to get to see her you know live in a show and it was all very exciting the first time i saw her was on the sunny and share show oh interesting which i was once a 10 or 11 and so they used to play the Sunny and Cher show uh, for people who are not familiar with that classic television show um, on TV land. And I remember very distinctly that there's an episode where Bernadette Peters is on. I didn't obviously know who she was at the time, uh, but the big thing that she did that made an impression on me was she sang Send in the Clowns. Mm -hmm. Obviously in a very different context. Um, and me at like 10 or 11, absolutely believed that Send in the Clowns was not written by Stephen Sondheim, 
but in fact was written specifically for the Sunny and Cher show, <laughs> which I have to say sort of makes sense if you think about it, especially because this was the iteration of the Sunny and Cher show after they had gotten divorced. And then when I was 13, I saw Annie get your gun. And I remembered, oh, like that's the lady for Sunny and Cher, as I'm sure everyone in the audience thought. Um, but I love that production and I loved her in it. And I think also, I'm not 100% that this is true, but it's how I remember it, that I think it was also the first show that I had ever seen, or first Broadway show I had ever seen, where the female lead was the actual lead and not just like the woman with the most lines, but the man was actually the protagonist. Yeah. And I remember, like, also kind of, like, my perception of her career, like, how that, the evolution of that, because as a kid, because uh, since I only knew her from, you know, those three shows, like, the Into the Woods, Sunday in the Park, and the Goodbye Girl, which I saw, like, and then coming to learn, and, oh, and Annie, and I knew she was in the movie Annie, like, <laughs> then coming to learn, like, that she had done all this, like, different, like, varied uh, work that she was, you know, in this Andrew Lloyd Webber show called Song and Dance, and, um, you know, and she had done all this stuff in Hollywood. Like, my, my perception, like, I started with, like, this very narrow perception, I guess, of her, you know, career in musical theater, and that, you know, then discovering that I guess, and we'll, we'll talk about all that, you know, but just, you know, learning that was also very surprising to me. And I, I wonder why I just like had this very narrow <laughs> perception of her but at first. That's one of the things that I think is so interesting about having this conversation and sort of examining musicals through her career rather than the other way around mm -hmm. um, is because I think one of the things that I think was actually a really nice thing about when we grew up is obviously the internet existed, but it didn't exist in the way that it exists now and social media didn't exist. So I think it very much freed people up to sort of have their own experiences with things and have their own opinions about, you know, shows and performers and all that and sort of carve their own path and sort of how you got to one thing from the other and how you kind of put together those puzzle pieces in your mind of what it all meant and what the significance was. Mm -hmm. And actually for me, that sort of became one of the real jumping off points for uh, this big profile that I wrote about Verona Peters, which you referenced earlier, was the fact that as I became an adult and sort of was much more inundated, especially when sort of working in theater, with like other people's perceptions and other people's being like, well, this is what she means. This is what the work means. That it was so interesting to be like, that wasn't how I experienced it all. Mm -hmm. And then kind of going back and reading the reviews and even, and actually in a way, like most acutely the contemporary ones, not necessarily the ones from like the sixties or seventies. Um, and just really being like, no, like I was at that thing. And that is not what that show meant to a 13 year old girl. That's not what that concert meant to a 16 year old girl. And you're wrong about how you're interpreting it. And I think there's another way to sort of build something around it. And then the thesis of, um, well, sort of one of the thesis there were kind of two, um, the one of that, of that um, 
profile was sort of the contradiction between these two labels that she really got stuck with, which is on one hand that she was sort of cute, adorable, childlike, all these things. And then also that she was the premier interpreter of Stephen Sondheim, who of course people treat with like such reverence as being such a genius. And you're like, well, how, how are you a cute and adorable child who can also be the premier interpretation, interpretist of somebody who we consider, you know, a genius? Like that doesn't work. Or you're saying, oh, she's just doing this somehow like magically. There's no thought. There's nothing like built up behind that. And of course that's not true. Um, but I think it's just a really interesting kind of opening to then go look at her work and look at sort of the arc of her career and her life and sort of see, you know, what was sometimes said about her, said about the work and whether it was true or whether it really wasn't. Because mm -hmm. I think something we'll probably get into later, because um, I know we talked about this a little privately, is so many of the shows that she's done, people have been like, oh, she's miscast, she's miscast. And that's been going on for like a really, really long time. And I always think like the thing about that is again, sort of going back to the idea that like a script is just a script. Like it's just sort of the words. It's just what people say, obviously in musicals, it's also the song, but it's not like the full thing until there's a production. So you don't know what it is outside of a production. Right. Um, and I think the other thing about like people, somebody being miscast is like a lot of times, like the people who are sort of starting those stories or making those determinations are like people in the press, right? Like it's critics and it's people who write about theater. And now it's people who have like big social media followings, but it's really like a small handful of people. And it doesn't mean that they're right. And it doesn't even necessarily mean it's the popular consensus. Well, I'm stealing this from Kate Blanchett and I used to use it in interval interviews all the time, but there's this documentary that she did um, when the Sydney Theater Company did Had a Gabbler and when they brought it to BAM, like the Australian version of PBS made a documentary about it. And one of the things that she said that she found really sort of troubling <laughs> about how Americans interpret the theater is they're like, they do it in such like an English class way of like, there's a correct interpretation. And we're doing that just based on like the script. And in fact, like, no, that's not what theater is. Like it's about a live production right. and that it can change greatly like over time and with different people. And that there's no sort of static thing of like, this is what it is. Which I, th it's so interesting with that because like the way I know of her is these two video, like, these two videos of Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park, which having them available that way kind of I I've always wondered like do, does these record do these recordings kind of contribute to that like make those performances like the static you know the way that those roles are forever going to be compared to because that's like the interpretation that is out there and like remains out there um, and I remember like the first time I saw a live production of Into the Woods at, um, at a college when I was in high school, I was like, it was so hard for me to turn the original, like the, all the rhythms, all the, the nuances of the original off in my head because 
I was so used to that from watching it over and over. Um, and like having Bernadette Peters' performance of the witch, it's so much in my head. Like what that does is also really interesting. Um, and, and as Dot in Sunday in the Park, since we have that too. And, and those are two roles she's very, you know, were, you know, are big roles for her and she's very much associated with. Yeah. I mean, I think, I know this is going to contradict a little bit of what I just said, but I also think it brings up the questions of sometimes like, does a show work or did a show just work under particular circumstances with these mm -hmm. specific people? Right. And I think sometimes, I, one of the things that I actually struggle with with theater and why I think sometimes I tend towards like to prefer film and television is that I sort of like with film and TV that it's sort of like one and done. So it's actually something that I struggle with too in, in various ways. What do you want, what should we start with? Dames at Sea? Yeah, let's just start at the beginning. Yeah, I know we saw there was a production of Dames at Sea maybe six years ago in New York. Um, yeah, yeah. I think which was like a big deal because it was the first revival of it since the original, if I recall. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, like a flawed show, um, a show, and I don't remember the specifics here enough to really go into it, um, but they definitely have some parts that are, let's just say, offensive. Mm -hmm. Um, what I think is sort of interesting in terms of Bernadette Peters and to give people a little background, just in case they're like, who is Bernadette Peters? Um, I know nothing about her early years is, you know, she started as a child actor, a, not like a terribly successful child actor or like a famous child actor or any of those things, but it was something that she had done all kind of growing up. And so the first bit of her career is sort of those like early adult roles. Um, and Dames at Sea was sort of her big breakout success. And it started off Broadway and then transferred on Broadway. Um, and it's based on sort of old movie musicals and is a spoof of that. <laughs> star tar of the navy i'm the hit miss of the sea when the ocean's getting wavy leave those handsome sailors to me on the swell swap on the poop deck i'm the ship shape shipmate in the hold i'm the star tar i'm the tar star of the navy blue and gold heave ho Two of the things that are interesting about it is that very early in her career is when sort of that cute and adorable stuff started. And of course, that was completely appropriate in a way for Dames at Sea. Right. Other than I think like one of the things, having gone back and read a lot of the reviews and like not just the reviews, but like profiles written about her kind of all throughout her career is I think a really common trap for critics, and I think this still completely exists, um, is with women especially, they talk about how somebody looks rather than their abilities, or they link how they look to their abilities or to their characteristics. Yeah. So instead of like describing the effect of the performance, 
they're describing it in terms of physical appearance. Um, and I think that's a real problem in general. And I think it's certainly a problem for her and that they were sort of linking so much kind of her performance and what she was doing, which were obviously like making very specific thought out choices um, to just sort of, you know, she looks the part or a version of that and still acknowledging that she was very good but from such an early age, it was so tied up in her appearance, uh, which I think is just hard on many levels. And I think the other thing that's so interesting about that show, which I do think also had an effect on the course of her career and public perception is, so the off-Broadway version was 1966 and then the Broadway version was 1968, I believe. Um, and it's just sort of like that is such an interesting time period in American history. And of course, like 1968 being, um, you know, what it's thought of as a very important year in American history. And then to be doing the show that's so like retrograde and that that's the thing you first could notice for at a point when also like everything that's happening in the culture at the moment is like so very alive and yeah. so very like not that thing. Um, like, I think that's just a very kind of interesting way to get started or first getting a lot of notice. It actually, it actually um, goes with something I was thinking about as I was looking at or, and thinking about her roles and how I experienced them and like which ones, like there are some, there are, there are some that are like actually where she's playing a character that's contemporary and then there's the ones that are either like a fairy tale like the witch or uh -huh. historical um or yeah it's just something fr something from the past um and yeah. it's and it's very intriguing to me where she, when she actually gets to play it, it being a musical that you know or or a movie or, or a tv show that is actually she's playing a contemporary woman yeah, I mean, I know we're sort of going to get to the Hollywood years where that comes up a lot. Um, but it is interesting that I think, especially at like the beginning of her year, there was a lot of stuff that was sort of like period based. Yeah. And yeah. even stuff that obviously like now we've never heard of that were complete flops or like little things that, you know, were not memorable. It was a lot of period pieces. And actually there was a while where there was a lot of like women who died. Mm. Which is so interesting because like one of the words that came up a lot in her early press was like waif, mm -hmm. which I think is a ridiculous word. Right. And it's also weird because they were talking about waif and then they were also sort of talking a lot about her body and how it actually uh, was not waif-like. All of which is kind of gross. Um, yeah. Well, I guess Mac and Mabel, like another early show, what was that mm -hmm. in the 70s? Um was was kind of that that kind of yeah. character yeah and somebody else who died and it's funny because I remember as a preteen and teen like listening to that recording so much because I loved her on that recording yeah in that way that I like a lot of people's early kind of work because there's something that's so like there's still a little bit of like untrained voice in it like it's not necessarily as clean and some of that you know it's just age so make the moments fly order 
I'll forget you by next year, some year. Next year, some year, time heals everything. Time heals everything. But loving you. I finally read the libretto to that show one year at summer camp at CMU when I was 16, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> but I think, again, it's a thing of like listening to a recording and sort of knowing the bare bones of the story. And you're like, oh, this is like a really complicated character. This, you know, it's like somebody who's ambitious and angry and sort of all these interesting things, yeah. which was probably true of like the real person she was playing. Um, and then just seeing that it wasn't there in the book. Although I remember also reading an interview where she didn't quite come right and say it, but said in general, one of the things that she got when she went to LA that she became sick of with musicals was that so many times, you know, they were like, oh, you know, we'll make these changes. We'll like build that character up. We'll make sure that all these concerns you have are met and then they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also like interesting thinking about that, particularly again, sort of in terms of the times and the female characters, because I think like something that's still, and you obviously know this and I, hopefully people listening know this too, but like still so often, uh, there's so much trouble seeing like women as a protagonist and sort of doing everything you need to make them like complete flushed out characters. And there can be so much resistance to that. Um, and I just think, you know, it must've been much, much worse than it sort of going in as an actress and being like, no, this needs to be changed. And actually there's a story once we get to you talking about Sondheim and suddenly in the perfect George, where she had really had to advocate for Dot in that show. And they're like, it's just an actress being vain. It's just an actress being vain. And then they were like, oh wait, no, she's right. And I think also, certainly in my experience, you know, actors are far more generative than we give them credit for rather than just seeing them as like interpretive artists. Um, And I just, I have a lot of questions about like sometimes what went on in those like early rehearsal rooms, which obviously like, uh, you know, I have no idea. But I would certainly imagine it must have been like pretty difficult to advocate for yourself as a woman in those spaces. Oh, just to add quickly, like the one other thing that happened right before she went to Hollywood was on the town. Right, right. Which I think is like mostly sort of interesting because like she got her first Tony nomination for that. And it was one where like a lot of people thought she was miscast. And I think kind of the first like big production where people were like, that's a bad choice. Who did she play in that? Uh, Hildy. Hildy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not a show that I'm overly familiar with, 
but I do think that that's sort of interesting. It's been the first um, instance of people being like, no, wrong. Yeah, so she moved to Hollywood in the 70s um, and actually was out there for a really long time, which I think is something people forget. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was like a pretty big part of her career all through the 70s um, and into the early 80s, which again, like is just such an interesting time for the country and like what's happening culturally, what's happening politically. Um, and during the time, you know, doing a lot of guest appearances on TV show. And actually, what one of the things that I think is sort of interesting is one of the people who she credits a lot for helping her career is Carol Burnett, mm. which I just think is sort of notable one because it's Carol Burnett, but also because it's like a woman. Yeah, well, I guess she also was like a theater person who then went out to Hollywood and... But also like the first person who I think really started giving her a chance as like a comedian right. and to be funny. And I think maybe one of the things that gets lost a little bit in the overall arc of her career is that she really there's also this whole kind of period where she's known for being like very kooky and funny Mm. yeah which I think is sort of interesting that's like was happening sort of simultaneously as some of the like innocent waif stuff right yeah I mean I guess like my first experience with her being into the woods which I always saw that interpretation of the witch as like a comedian I think and the comedy was certainly there in Annie Dragon and certainly contemporary stuff like I don't think it ever went away but I think there was this sort of it was more heightened during the 70s -hmm. also just because of I think sometimes stylistically what's happening then we, you know, we were just watching, you know, her in a Norman Lear show from <laughs> from the time, yeah. which uh, when I first heard about that, it was like mind blowing, like Bernadette Peters in this in a Norman Lear show. And I, you know, grew up also on Nick and Night in TV land yeah. watching a lot of Norman Lear and never once occurred to me that Bernadette Peters was in a a nor that kind of you know a Norman Lear show that kind of show so to see that you know was a little mind-blowing in a way but also really um like just revealing about Bernadette Peters just uh range and style well I think and one of the things um which I had forgotten that I had put in that profile of her and then I found after you know you found the show on YouTube because I had never seen it either um until very recently like I knew of its existence um but yeah I had never seen it but I had read some articles from that time that she did and you know people were like again like she's miscast um and Norman Lear kind of gave a great answer where it was like well that's about you not about her right which I think is sort of a perfect answer to that question. Um, But what I also think is sort of interesting about that performance, and it's, you know, it's a very flawed show and it's sort of a concept that I think we both agree doesn't really work. Um, Briefly, it's about a very liberal photojournalist who dates a very conservative, he's a writer, right? Yeah, he's a columnist. He's a conservative columnist, yeah. and about like their relationship uh, during the 70s in DC. And there's also an age difference. And like, you know, it doesn't work. 
but I think her performance is interesting because it's so confident. Like that's what actually struck me the most right. about it is it's very, very confident. And the thing that I'd forgotten about that I had put in that profile is that at the time, like a number of re- reviewers were like, oh, she's too abrasive. Hmm. Which I think is sort of like a sexist term to begin with. Right. And in a way, I feel like her confidence is, you know, the thing that makes it interesting. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And she's really, I, I feel like she's really driving that show. Um, uh-huh. And it is interesting, like, looking back at that and, like, knowing where she's going, like, you know, to Sunday in the Park and into the, you know, and Song and Dance, like, all the shows that she, musicals that are coming later like, all her work in Hollywood, like, how that kind of feeds into all the work she's going to do in musical theater to come, even though she, even though she doesn't know it yet. (laughs) The other thing that's sort of so interesting to me of the Hollywood period, so I was more familiar with it because I, you know, knew The Jerk, um, and Pennies from Heaven is one of my favorite movies. There's something about like watching a lot of her work, like the guest appearances that she did and particularly actually the concerts that she did during that time. Cause also during that time, she was doing kind of a lot of concerts all over like and a lot in like Las Vegas and sort of in California. Um, and you can find some of them on YouTube and I would recommend people going out and watching them. And it's so like, there's so much energy in them. And there's also, I think, which surprised me a little bit, but there's also like some, I would say like anger in the performances, Hmm. which I think isn't something you necessarily think of with her. And I think it's sort of, again, like for women, a complicated thing in performance, but I think you can hear it in sort of some of the songs and what I like. And I think it's interesting. And again, sort of thinking about culturally at that time because I think that was true of like a lot of women working at the time and a lot of female singers at the time you know and there's a lot to be angry about um and then also just like situating her more like in the culture of the time even if some of the stuff that she was doing was like not from that time at all um and you know she's working with really interesting people when she was in LA too like Norman Lear Mel Brooks Obviously, the collaborations with Steve Martin, um, you know, no slumps there. Right. Um, but I think like that thing of like these really like confident performances, and this sort of became the other thesis of what I wrote, is that so much of, I think what I saw in her as a child and then young adult, and what I think a lot of people saw was that she was like really unique, not afraid to be unique. Um, and sort of the term that I used in the piece, although now this term makes me like squirm a little bit because um, it's a little cliche, but just the idea of like somebody who really wasn't afraid to like take up space. Right. And be like very big and very like, I'm here. When did she come back to New York and why so, did she come back? So sort of like the last, what I would consider the end of that period is Pennies from Heaven, which I think, I just think it's like a wonderful movie. And if people haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. Um, I think it's so well done. I think it actually like, it 
did not, if I remember correctly, did not get particularly good reviews at the time. If she maybe had a different PR team and if the people had been more receptive to the movie in general, instead of like, what is this? Because the other thing about that movie, uh, just to give some context of why it was sort of strangely received is because it was the first dramatic thing Steve Martin ever did. But I think, you know, had she had a different PR team, had the movie been received differently, I think she would have gotten like an Oscar nomination. And I wonder how that would have changed the course of things. So after Pennies from Heaven is when she came back to New York. In part, I think because she and Steve Martin broke up, although that, you know, they did break up. There was obviously like not something she never talked about a lot in the press, so who knows. Um, and the first thing she did here was actually a play. Oh, um, Sally and Masha. Sally and Masha. Yeah, at MPC, um, directed by Lynn Meadows. Um, Christine Baranski. And- yeah. Um, and then in the early 80s is when she started with the workshops of Sunday in the Perfect George, which then sort of led into a different phase of her career. There's an article that I found an interview where she is talking about kind of how she's changed and grown as a person during this time. And I think also at that point, starting to embrace being ambitious more, starting to embrace, I mean, she never uses the word, but I'm going to go and say like starting to embrace feminism a little bit more. I think sort of all of that kind of personal growth she had done led into Sunday. And what was interesting in this article is that the guy sort of wanted to paint it as, oh, Sunday, like working with Sondheim in the show, like it changed you. And she was like, no, all this growth happened before. And it's sort of what led to the performance that you see, which I thought was sort of such a great thing for her to point out that it wasn't like a Spengali story. Um, And I think kind of going back to the thing I said before about how she actually had to like actively advocate for that. Right. You know, you wonder if it had been a 23 year old in that role who had not done that, had not been like, would not have felt comfortable doing that. You know, who knows what it would have been. Yeah. Not just in terms of the performance, but I think also in terms of the show. Do you know what she advocated for that was changed or that was added? I, I know a little bit that she thought that like the journey really got lost. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it mostly had to do with the second act, which is where obviously she becomes the grandchild. Right. Um, I always think Sunday in the Perk is such a weird show to summarize because I think like if you do it badly, it sort of sounds like it's a show about time travel. Right. Um, But I think the other sort of interesting thing is at the time she, and you know, she obviously had already had the Tony nomination. She had success in LA. I mean, she, you know, like people knew she was, but I think they really thought of Sunday in the Park as like Mandy Patinkin's show, like between the actors, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily, nobody thought of it as like a big Bernda Peters thing. Right. And that's actually something we do more in hindsight and more because of like the Sondheim label was something, cause she only, you know, she did something in the Purple George and she did into the, to the woods. And those are the only two Sondheim shows or Sondheim roles that she's originated. Right. 
And then there was like a very long gap before she did another one. Right. And it was in fact, like her concert work more than anything that actually gave her that like premiere interpreter Sondheim label. It wasn't necessary. I mean, obviously the work in the shows built into that, but it wasn't necessarily like based on a show. Right. And it was only like much later that she was in all the Sondheim revivals. Yeah. Yeah, no, that label much more than anything came from her concert work, which I think is sort of so fascinating, especially because like those concert recordings were what I grew up with. Right. And for the most part, I knew those recordings before I knew any of like Sondheim's shows. Mm-hmm. And I think as a kid, like it's so interesting when you hear musical theater songs outside of their context, because you try to build your own. Yeah. And it allows you that freedom to just be like, oh, I know exactly what she's singing about. And it's this. Right. And you're sort of not trapped by like anyone's preconceived notion of like what it should be or what it is. And I think that's actually like a really great way to first experience something. And I think it's something we should actually encourage with children. I wanted to talk about song and dance a little bit. I'm just like- okay. It comes Sorry, like, I skipped right over that. No, no, it's okay. I'm always fighting for song and dance. No, it comes in between, I guess, Sunday in the Park and Into the Woods. Like it was like 85. Um, but what I just, I, I find that show very interesting because one, again, like as I was saying before, like a contempt, it's like a, she's actually playing a contemporary woman in it. But also it does sort of have like, it, it it sort of is like about a young woman in her 20s who's having the all these experiences she goes out to LA she comes back <laughs> like she's like doing a lot so I it just is interesting to me like talking about her career that like the show like has a lot of that sort of in it not that she's an actress in the part but like she's still like a young woman, like figuring out, you know, how she wants to, you know, it's, it's about relationships mostly, but yeah. it's still like I mean, a woman figuring all, a lot of things out. Cups tea and Caesar salad, blood clots, Beverly Hills, when business starts to dip. Wheel out the glucose strip Have a cutthroat time Twist a line Dreamers Trapped in a jewel box Big names fading Um, well, let's talk about then moving into uh, Gypsy, uh, which was the early 2003, so early 2000s. Um, 
And uh, I guess this kind of started a period of, well, any get your gun was before that, right? So yeah, any get your gun would have been the late nineties, I think. Right. Yeah, late nineties. So now we're sort of in a period where she's not really originating any roles anymore, but she is. Uh, well, originating within the production for both Annie Get Your Gun and Gypsy. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, they're revivals, but right. Well, yeah. Well, she's she's doing mainly revivals. just to differentiate between some of the shows that came later, but um, yeah. I mean, Gypsy. So Annie Get Your Gun, as I think we previously mentioned, like did not get good reviews, mm -hmm. and people again kind of thought she was miscast um I think Ben Brantley particularly offensively which I'm sure comes as a surprise to no one um <laughs> described her as like uh, you know that she just wasn't right because she was sort of too tiny too feminine um which I just think is ridiculous um to get back to Gypsy, some point after I'd seen it is when I began to be aware of the fact that like people thought that she was miscast and there was all this drama around the fact that people thought she was just completely wrong for the part. Right. Um, and you know, some of it had to do with her age. Some of it was just like, well, she's not the right type. Um, and again, like also to say like with all that stuff, because it wasn't just reviews, like it also wasn't a lot of, you know, pieces around the production. Um, so there's also just so much like stupid, petty gossip mm -hmm. about in theater. And I think that's actually something that's important to point out kind of across the board is that, you know, it's a community like any other and therefore there's a lot of gossip that it has nothing to do with the actual work. Yeah, I mean, in terms of her and that role, I remember that conversation around it too, and they and there was a lot of talk also about, like how the like she was actually closer to the original person who they wrote about, yeah, um, and and not the character that was kind of created for the musical based on that person, which was more like an Ethel Merman, <laughs> which was Ethel yeah. Merman. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, and then it goes into, like, I guess it goes back to the question of, like, are these shows, um, like, how indelible is that first actor in that role to set the tone for everything that's to come with that show? Like like can we have this other interpretation of the role from somebody who is a different person some people can get a thrill knitting sweaters and sitting still that's okay for some people who don't know they're alive some people can thrive and bloom living life in a living room that's Perfect for some people of 105. But because I do think there's a way, you know, with revivals where it is like, okay, there's a way it's supposed to be done and you can do that and do it correctly. 
or you can do it completely differently and sort of like outside the box, you know, and then sometimes you're like, okay. And people are like, oh, that's so innovative. Right. Um, but when you're sort of not doing, when you're just still like engaging with the material sort of as is, but just interpreting it differently, yeah. I think that is when people sort of get, huh, I don't know about this. You're just doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Which I do think has to do somewhat, like Kate Blanchett said, with the way theater is taught in America and the way that we're sort of supposed to... Um, I do think there's a big mistake in seeing like theater as literature because it just fundamentally isn't. Right. Which of course is obvious on one hand because it's collaborative in a way that literature simply is not. Right. Uh, and I think the truth is, is like theater is really collaborative and, you know, the, I think also because in America, we've always had the thing of like the most important person is the playwright. And it's about the playwright's intent, the playwright's intent. And I think that almost sort of goes to a more like cinematic thing of like one and done. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously like this podcast, part of the mission is to like look at theater as you look at musicals, sorry, as a literary art form. But, but, but that is also like why I wanted to do this episode because so many times as we're talking about musicals as a literary art form, performances come up and like how that changes things um you know when I see a show how I experience it and my my interpretation of it is not just about what the words are it's about how the actor is interpreting um that role and what they're bringing to it so to leave that out of the conversation is very it's difficult and it also like isn't complete so Right, because it's yeah. like now, and like directors too, because I think directors have a huge impact on material. Right. Um, and I certainly would say like both from like observing some directors in the room and also just like hearing enough that you also, you, like directors are just like very, very important. And I, you know, in many cases can almost become co-writers, um, which is sort of a complicated thing to talk about. But I think- you know, it sort of goes back to the thing that I was saying is the thing that Rodgers and Hammerstein brings up for me, which is like, is a piece of like theater writing on the page good when you read it on the page and are really not satisfied and it really doesn't feel complete? Because that then is definitely leaving room for the actors, for the directors, mm-hmm. for it to be malleable. Whereas, you know, if you read a novel and you're like, well, this feels, mm, feels like the author should have done another draft you're like well that's not good because other than obviously you know the only collaboration that exists with a novel is between you know the finished work by the writer and then you as the reader the later later half of or the the later part of her career being these revivals you know post gypsy of mostly Sondheim stuff little night music uh follies um yeah those are the two big ones yeah and well those are also it i think yeah and then hello dolly um most recently all performances that were very well received Mm -hmm. and where then it was also made like a very big deal about the fact that she was doing those shows um because at that point 
unlike actually before in the 80s now like she was so associated with Sondheim right but then what was sort of interesting at that point is even though there are like the recordings of Sunday in the Park with George which I really like Into the Woods which I do not like (laughs) um I think it's sort of interesting that if you had become like very, very used to hearing her on those, like her own recordings, uh, you know, in concert, singing Sondheim, to then have the experience of seeing her in the actual shows. But yeah, let's move on um, to our next section, which is why is this so good? And uh, we're going to talk about actually not a musical theater song, but um, I'm interested to hear why you picked it. Uh, Friends, uh, the Bette Midler song, uh, which was written by Buzzy Linnahart and Mark Moogie Klingman, um, but obviously made popular by Bette Midler. So, yeah. Why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? It's funny. When you asked me and then I picked this and then like an hour later, I was like, oh, wait, that's not from a musical, which obviously was supposed to be. But I feel like it can still count because I think um, what people forget, I mean, obviously, like, you know, uh, Bad Midler has done musicals, has been on Broadway. But um, I think what people forget is like how her career really started was her performances at the bathhouse. Right. Um, which were like these there's a little bit of footage of some of them that you can find on YouTube. Um, and then there's some full concert footage from later, but like, they're so like, they're so theatrical. Right. And I think that she was putting some of these songs in like very theatrical context because I thought it was an interesting choice in terms of even our conversation about Brenda Peters, because of sort of like the overlap between some of these performances performer performers wow um the overlap between some of these performers not just in the sense of it obviously like hello dolly where bet midler did it and unburdened that came in after or that bet midler did the tv version of gypsy and that um bernadette then did the broadway version broadway revival but also just thinking about again like these women who sort of had careers at the same time that you know were actresses and singers um and that again Ben Miller like is a couple of years older and her career trajectory is very different um partly I mean one because like if you haven't seen um the early stuff and you just know her from like First Wives Club Hocus Pocus like forward I would definitely recommend that people go check out this um stuff because you can find some on YouTube and actually the thing that made me think of the song is a few months ago, I rewatched Divine Madness, which you can find, um, it's streaming. I, I watched it on Apple, uh, which is a film version of one of her concert tours. Mm-hmm. And then I was sort of listening to some other stuff and I had never paid any attention to Friends, even though I was like highly familiar with Bette Midler and a lot of her work. But Friends was one of those where I'd always just like rolled my eyes at it and was like, skip. Because I sort of had put it in my mind in the same sort of um, camp as like wing beneath my wings, which I was just like, no. Like, and, you know, thought of it as being just this like very trite upbeat thing. But then I was listening to a recording that Beth did that was recorded live, I believe, um, that started with Up the Ladder to the Roof. And then it's a live recording and her encore at the end of it is a version of like she sings Friends. 
And it is the first time that I really ever listened to it. And I was like, wait, this performance in the song is like amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't written for her. It was written for like maybe for the guy. I mean, that the guy who wrote it, wrote it for himself, but like some like popular rock band guy yeah. who had no success with it. Um, but like the lyrics to the song, like they're so actually, like they're very messed up. Like for a song, that I think people think is like, oh, let's just sing this of like a camp reunion because it's about friends. Like the lyrics are actually really, really dark. And I think the way that she performs them, it's like a little manic. It's kind of angry. Like it's really complicated. And I think it's fantastic. And especially as somebody who, meaning myself, um, who has a lot of, who finds friendship to be a very vexing topic. Mm-hmm in general. And I think actually, you know, thinking about Ben Midler singing it and like the context of, and she sang it very early on because it was one of those, it's on her first album from 1972. Right. And I went back then and listened to that and like that performance there, like you can hear how really sort of like a demented song it kind of is. But you got to have friends. The feelings are so it really really moving and really compelling but not because in any way it's like happy or comforting because I think it just gets to like a weird complexity that actually exists in terms of like the role of friendship in our lives or making friends and keeping them and I think that is particularly true for people who work in the entertainment industry where I think friendship is just really 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 hard when you aren't really paying attention to the lyrics it sounds like yeah you got to have friends my friends and like from the perspective of like yes I have friends all around me but it's actually from the perspective of like you gotta have friends because I have nobody around me (laughs) right now and when you see her perform it there's like the part where she talks to the audience and engages in the audience so it's almost like you know my success is my friends or sort of this but I actually have no friends so I am going to wait here and try to get some because I like need them and I just I don't know I think it's really interesting and like really weird and really fantastic yeah yeah I mean she says I had I had some friends but they're gone gone well and then somebody took them away which is such like interesting phrasing right I don't care if I'm hungry or freezing cold I'm gonna get me some of them my new friends to come I don't care if I'm hungry or general like there's something so because like try for everyone I think like trying to make friends as an adult is really hard but I also think adults who like or adult characters where like their fatal flaw is that they just really want friends like it's such an interesting thing Mm -hmm. 
when I was uh, saw some of the footage of it, and it's not Friends is not in Divine Madness, which was so Divine Madness came out and it's from 1980 or 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see early recordings, it's so like there's also like a performance style that kind of reminded me of some of the stuff like the Bernadette performance style in the 70s. Where again, it's like this weird mixture of like funny, kooky, outgoing, and also kind of angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. And I think really- anger is like an underexplored emotion, particularly in women, um, which is like a whole other topic. But I thought there's sort of like a connection that way too. That's very true. I was gonna say I do feel like that you can read or, or hear that the anger in this song. Um, yeah, like it. Cause it like starts out like very slow and then it gets, uh, you know, it gets to the, the faster tempo. And I am all alone. There is no one here beside me. And my problems have all gone. There is no one to deride me But you got to have friends The feelings are so strong I got me my, I got me my The girl must be all of my friends All of friends and friends Friends and friends and friends and friends and friends and friends and friends Cool. Well, let's move on to the final section, Something Wonderful, where we just talk about something in the world of musical theater that we're looking forward to or excited about want to give a shout out to um anything like that so one thing that sort of did get me excited uh was Kristen Chenoweth doing a concert or Christmas concert at the Met oh yeah uh because I love Kristen Chenoweth and just also another performer who I just think is like very unique Mm -hmm. um and very uh, idiosyncratic um I also very much enjoy the holiday season, which I didn't used to as a kid because I found it very difficult in Ohio being like Jewish during Christmas. Right. Um, but in New York, I actually really like it mostly because I just like it aesthetically. Yeah. But I also like enjoy Christmas music. Um, and I enjoy the fact that she's doing a concert someplace very fancy at the Met. Because I think the other thing that I find is sort of like has been like disappointing in a lot of my adult experience with like New York theater. Um, It's that I think it can sort of be hard to sustain, particularly if you didn't grow up here, which I didn't, because for me as a kid, like going to a show, like it was always supposed to be like a special occasion, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And I still remember, I mean, I was like in my twenties before I ever wore like jeans inside a Broadway theater because like you just didn't do I mean and I was also quite old before I ever wore jeans on an airplane so yeah. you know to give some context to all that right. um but I think I sort of miss the fact when it wasn't such a pedestrian experience and obviously 
I, you know, I'm saying that with a fair amount of like privilege, um, particularly like economic in the sense of like, you know, as somebody where like ticket prices aren't an issue. And so I am sort of talking, you know, um, when I say like a pedestrian experience, I understand that for like many people, mm-hmm. the ticket price alone makes it not that. Right. Um, but I think as somebody who like very much misses when it was like a special experience where you dressed up and, you know, where it was like an event. Yeah. I think I also am excited about the fact that like she's being a Met concert because it feels very fancy and special um, in a way that I appreciate and enjoy because I like, you know, all those things. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater. We'll answer your questions on our season finale. Please also email if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song, on Twitter at scene song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.